Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of General Douglas MacArthur, Vice President Alvin W. Barkley, Senator William Fulbright, General George C. Marshall, Senator Margaret Chase Smith, David Dubinsky, and more than 40 other men and women in the news in the 13th performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. Dear Congressman, you're always asking for our advice, so here's mine. Fire Atchison, impeach Truman, and as far as you're concerned, you can resign and come home too. You're no good either. Vital decisions have yet to be made. Decisions far beyond the scope of the authority vested in me as the military commander. I say to you, that it is the duty of this convention to say to the communists in our union, no matter where they are, sail under your own colors, but do not disgrace the flag of our international. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding of the news. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. The Han River is in winter a swollen artery of ice, which wanders across the waste of the Korean Peninsula like an artery across a man's bicep. In the summer, the riverbed is shallow and the water's muddy and a brownish yellow. This week, it was just half season between the ice months and the mud. And on Wednesday, United Nations troops crossed the river in force, east of Seoul. The water you hear is no sound effect. These are the sounds of American dolefoots with 60-pound packs on their back, wading across the shallow rock and ice-bedded river that winning armies have crossed four times in this ten months of war. There were other sounds in Korea this week. Captain Burke, Captain Pearson, Captain Wright, Captain McCollum, Major Branch, Captain Harb. You are now at a B-29 base. Each of those men is the commander of a super fort as he attends the briefing session of a mission which is to hit communist bases above the 38th parallel. There is the traditional and important synchronizing of watches. Five, four, three, two, one, hat. Oh, four, five, five. Uh, aircraft will bomb at two-minute intervals. The axis of attack will be zero, zero, zero degrees, distance 30 nautical miles. This time has to be controlled prior to your IT fly 245 degrees from your pre-control point. Religious services will be held after specialized briefings, Catholics in the target study room, Protestants in the 345th operation. Are there any questions? Dismissed. The automatic reflex of chairs being pushed back and a mission to Punyang getting underway. Hours later, the strike is completed, and in the operation's hut there is another sound, 
the clatter of the teletype, and word that the first planes have bombed. He dropped his bombs at 12.19 local time. The report said he dropped his bombs on the primary target. There are four aircraft in his formation. He dropped visually with excellent results. The report's flat. And he reports no fighters seen. The B-29s, capable of staying in the air 20 hours and carrying enormous bomb loads for strategic bombing of enemy cities and factories, had taken out most of the so-called strategic targets in Korea. And they were by necessity becoming a tactical weapon as well. Back in Japan, the biggest floating weapon in history, the battleship Missouri, which has been serving as a mobile artillery base ranging up and down the Korean east coast, was bidding goodbye to an old skipper, Captain Irving T. Duke. Ship's company. Fred? Fred. This is entitled to my shipmates. On my departure from the good ship Missouri, which it has been my good fortune to command through these past eventful ten months, I want to thank each of you for the privilege of being your commanding officer. You have been ever faithful in your duty, and you have set a record. As the Missouri changed skippers, it floated at virtually the same spot where on September 2nd, 1945, Douglas MacArthur had on its deck accepted the Japanese surrender. This week, MacArthur was still at war, made his 11th flying trip to the Korean front, inspected the long, hard line that Matt Ridgway had forged, reported to the United Nations that his troops could hold that line indefinitely, but that stalemate was inevitable. General MacArthur. Designed to meet abnormal military inhibitions, our strategic plan involving constant movement to keep the enemy off balance with a corresponding limitation upon his initiative remains unaltered. Assuming no diminution of the enemy's flow of ground forces and material to the Korean battle area, a continuation of the existing limitation upon our freedom of counteroffensive action, and no major additions to our organizational strength, the battle line cannot fail in time to reach a point of theoretical military stalemate. Thereafter, our further advance would militarily benefit the enemy more than it would ourselves. Even under our existing conditions of restraint, it should be clearly evident to the communist foe now committed against us that they cannot hope to impose their will in Korea by military force. Vital decisions have yet to be made. Decisions far beyond the scope of the authority vested in me as the military commander. Decisions which are neither solely political nor solely military, but which must provide on the highest international levels an answer to the obscurities which now becloud the unsolved problems raised by Red China's undeclared war. General MacArthur was not the only American soldier with thoughts on the future conduct of the Korean War. The GI has something to say, too. Last summer, he was an untrained, unseasoned rookie, 
Last December in the north, an outnumbered, overwhelmed, frozen soldier in retreat. Now he is experienced, seasoned, and advancing. He knows how to fight, and he seems to know what the fighting is all about, and thinks hard about the decisions of the high command. Our correspondent, John Jefferson, asked four combat veterans about the future of the Korean War and how they felt about crossing the 38th parallel. This is what Corporal Paul J. Farrick of Philadelphia said. Well, if it'll help rid us of communism, why not? And Roy Miner of Watertown, South Dakota. Well, as far as crossing the 38th goes, uh, I don't know. I'd just soon quit fighting myself. However, if it's necessary to check communism, that's all right. And Corporal Jeff Glassier, who says he's against it. I don't think we should at this time, unless we're going to go on all our war with China. And another G.I. who says, let's not take a chance. Let's make them come down after us. I believe that uh, to concentrate our forces just on the 38th, or reasonably below the 38th, and uh, invite the Chinese, if they wish to continue to fight, to come down to that point and fight us would be more of a strategic advantage to us than trying to push up to the other one. For this reason, uh, my personal opinion is that by having them bring their supplies and what have you down to where we are, our air forces would have a better chance to hit them. But any time we get up there, well, that stretches, that stretched our supply lines, you see, so we might suffer the same thing that happened before. And that's merely a personal opinion. The American Doefoot, model 1951, is inclined to be less provincial than his ancestors of other wars, has words of praise for his allies, especially the Turks and the French. The French are very good fighters. Uh, uh, sort of a devil-may-care. They just about uh, don't care about what they do. The uh, Banzai, the uh, Chinese would come up the hill in Banzai, and the French would Banzai right down again after them. And the uh, American soldier wasn't accustomed to the use of the bugle out in the uh, at night. These Chinese had come along blowing their bugles, and uh, so the French uh, got the idea uh, similar, and they started getting sirens going. You should see those time and go. <laughs> the French are very good. They'd just send more Frenchmen over, then we'd be okay. In the last few months, one of the spectacles of the fighting has been the terrific Turks. There is a saying among GIs that you can always tell which hills have been taken by the Turks. Their victims have a definite trademark, carved with the bayonet. Listen to the Turkish commander in Korea, Brigadier Teshin Yashij. <laughs> The general says the ultimate goal in battle is the complete annihilation of the enemy at the soonest possible moment. After getting close to the enemy lines by means of firepower, the best method of annihilating the enemy is to enter his trenches and give him no chance to escape. Now here is a G.I.'s comment on his Turkish comrades. The Turks are good with a bayonet. They got the G.I.'s beat with a bayonet, but not with a rifle. This was a week in which soldiers in Korea and letters in Washington dominated the news. And if there was no connection between a fur cap at Yongpyong and a fur coat in Washington, there was at least one congressman who said letter writing could get an honest politician into trouble. Representative Paige Belcher, Republican from Oklahoma, told this story. You know, congressman always tries to be helpful to those constituencies of his uh, district who write in requesting various things. Of course, there are times when a congressman uh, can possibly be too helpful. A colleague, a friend of mine, uh, uh, received a frantic letter from a wife whose husband was in the armed services uh, telling how desperately the man was needed at home. And my congressman friend, after going through 
considerable difficulty in getting the man out of the army. A few days later, was terribly surprised to get a letter from the man himself stating that he had joined the army to get away from his wife and now was re-enlisting, and would the congressman in the future just please mind his own business? But there were other letters and other politicians in the news, and over these there was no laughter in a nation which is trained to laugh at almost anything. Last week it was E. Merle Young in a mink coat. This week it was Democratic Senator Murray of Montana and Miami hotels. The senator's son, Jim, collected $21,000 in attorney's fees for helping the Sorrento Hotel get a Reconstruction Finance Corporation loan. And as the Senate committee investigating the RFC continued to look for influence, it came across a letter written by Senator Murray. Here is a committee member, Republican Senator Wallace Bennett of Utah, talking about Senator Murray and his letter. On October 24, 1949, Senator James Murray wrote to Harley Hyde and said, Well, I'll read the letter. I'd like to put it in the record. It's, a, it's addressed to the Honorable Harley Highs, Reconstruction Finance Corporation, 811 Vermont Avenue, Washington, Ray, Harry, and Jenny Simberg, Sorrento Hotel, Miami Beach, Florida, my dear Mr. Highs. I've been advised that Mr. Simberg has submitted a request to the RFC for a change in the resolution that was passed in the above matter. The resolution as adopted provides for a participation of 40% by the bank in the loan of a million dollars. I urge you to grant the request submitted to you on October 29, 1949, by Mr. Simberg. The facts in this case and the developments therein since the adoption of the resolution by the RFC clearly warrant, warrant further action by RFC. There is no doubt but that the RFC was created to relieve just such situations as exist in this case. Unless the relief now sought is granted, irreparable damage will result. I'm sure you agree with me that, if possible, this should be avoided. Sincerely. James Murray. In other words, the loan uh, was finally made for a million dollars after Senator uh, Murray's wire and after his son and Mr. Glassgold had called with Mr. Dodds on Mr. Dunham. Senator Murray quickly defended himself, claimed that it was a legitimate loan which had been paid back said he is asked to act in behalf of many constituents, could see no reason for not acting simply because his son was asking for the favor. Every senator and congressman is called upon to make representations to the board in cases which comply with the requirements of the law. As regards my son's application and participation in this matter, I want to state unequivocally that I treated the case just as I did any other case. He is a lawyer conducting proper and ethical services for his clients. And I can see no reason why, because he is my son, I should treat him any differently than I should any other lawyer. When he called my attention to the problems he had and his associate were encountering in connection with this matter, and when investigation convinced me that his facts were correct, I volunteered to make exactly the same sort of representation to the RFC that I have made in many similar cases for other citizens. Every mature American, of course, knows that senators and congressmen are asked to do many things in behalf of the people who vote for them, that there is a never-ending pile of mail and callers asking for everything from a new post office to a radio station to a commission for junior to a loan and even a bit of legislation. We asked the secretaries of two distinguished senators, who shall be nameless, 
to read us a few samples of the senator's mail. Dear Congressman, my family hasn't had a minute of sleep since we moved into this block. That's because the fire station's right next door. Can't you do something about moving the fire station into the next neighborhood so as we can get sleep? Yours truly. Dear Senator, every time there's just a little old rain around here, my house and farm gets so flooded, it's high enough to go swimming in. When are you going to get us that new dam you promised? Or don't you keep your promises? Yours truly. Dear Congressman, the Democrats in this state are attempting to carve up our districts so they can have an absolute majority in each one. Can't you do something about this? Is there any way that the Cherokee Strip can secede from Oklahoma and be annexed to Kansas or Texas? Yours truly. Dear Senator, my son just graduated from the state university, but he hasn't got a job yet, and he's just loafing around, him and all his education. I voted for you in the last election. Can you get my boy a job? He knows more about English literature than anybody in town. Sincerely. Dear Congressman, you're always asking for our advice, so here's mine. Fire Atchison, impeach Truman, and as far as you're concerned, you can resign and come home too. You're no good either. Yours truly. Dear Congressman, as you probably know, it's pretty tough on a woman trying to run a 100-acre farm, particularly when she's a widow with three children. You've traveled around the district, and if you know any good, respectable man of 40 or so who wants to settle down, I'd appreciate your telling me about him. Sincerely yours. But the serious question, now before our lawmakers and us as taxpayers, is where does political favor end and corruption and dishonesty begin? We asked Senator William Fulbright, who has been conducting the RFC hearings, what he thought. I do not wish to set myself up as an arbiter of proper conduct for members of Congress. I am only one United States senator. There are 95 others and 435 members of the House. Each is responsible in the end to the people who elect them. The question is, how far should we go? There are no limits from a strictly legal standpoint, so long as we do not profit personally. But there are limits which each senator must draw for himself as to how far he can properly go. And Republican Senator Charles Toby of New Hampshire. Every senator, every congressman knows in his heart, he knows in his conscience what is right and what is wrong. Certainly you can have requests for assistance from constituents which are perfectly legal and perfectly proper. That is covered in our Bill of Rights. But the congressman must approve or disapprove as his conscience dictates. Every one of us who holds public office knows in his heart what is clean and what is unclean. We who are elected to represent the people and to defend the Constitution are responsible to our trusts. And all the pettifogging legalisms in the book cannot help us evade our trust. If it's legal and proper, then it's right. If it's still legal but improper, then it's wrong. No matter what the temptation, no matter what the inducement, no matter what the personal gain might be. At the time of Solomon's temple, the injunction was given, Be ye clean, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. Let us apply that principle in paraphrase. Be ye honest intellectually as you represent the people in the affairs of government. Now the tokens of influence were pastel minks, and a couple of years ago it had been deep freezers. 
Maybe it only went to prove that inflation knows no bounds. At a time when this nation needs all the unity it can muster, the dirty linen hanging in the nation's capital made it difficult for our enemies and our allies to see just how strong we really are. Republican Senator Nolan of California said the issue was serious enough for the president to come home and clean it up. It seems to me that in the light of these conditions which strike at the very moral fabric of America, the president of the United States should return from his Florida vacation and should clean house. I think that it is more important than taking a vacation in Florida and more important than any other thing which can be done at the present time. Bert Andrews and Marquis Childs are two of Washington's best newspaper men, have sat through uncounted hearings and watched Washington in action for 20 years. Where do they think patronage ends and dishonesty begins? First, Mark Childs of United Features, whose column appears in 165 papers throughout America. What I've called the influence industry has long flourished in Washington. Mark Twain wrote about it in his novel, The Gilded Age, describing the goings-on in the capital after the Civil War. There have been many more recent examples of the fixer, the lobbyist, the five percenter, who can get a government contract or a loan or an airline franchise. The latest example is being exposed by Senator Fulbright's subcommittee investigating the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Such exposure is healthy because it helps to draw the line between legitimate influence and crooked connections. What is most disgusting about this RFC business is the meanness and pettiness of it. But really disturbing is President Truman's reluctance to take action against associates guilty of selling influence. Now, here is Bert Andrews, Pulitzer Prize winner and bureau chief of the New York Herald Tribune. Here we have astounding cases where the moral and ethical senses of some men are so blunted that they actually can't see that they have done anything wrong. Well, this is nothing short of appalling in view of the indisputable evidence that men in government jobs use their official positions to do favors, for example, for persons seeking RFC loans. There is equally good evidence that a surprisingly large number of such officials subsequently turned up in well-paying jobs with firms that received money from the RFC. It's really a pretty sickening picture. And I don't believe it will be improved until the American people really get mad about it and until they convince that kind of government official that they, the people, won't stand for such actions. There is unanimous agreement among senators and reporters that more honesty in government is required. But honesty in government can't be legislated into being. Anyone who looks for a clear definition between what's improper and what's illegal will find himself stalemated. This program believes... We just have to go back to principles that are a good deal older than the RFC. Just use our individual influence as voters to elect honest men and see to it that the laws, imperfect as they are, are enforced and that those who break them go to jail. The committee phase of the great debate on troops for Europe is now over. But Democratic Senator Robert Kerr of Oklahoma fired a few parting shots. Generals Taft and Wherry, trying to interpret and guide the Republican position on foreign policy, reminds me of the story of the blind men and the elephant. In this fable, you remember, their interpretation depended on which end of the elephant they had hold of. But being blind, they didn't know where to grab, nor what they caught when they did. It looked as if Senator Taft came up with about as much as the curl of the elephant's tail when he testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Wherry attached himself to the small end of the trunk. 
they did not get close to the great solid body of the Republican Party, including Messrs. Vandenberg, Dewey, Dulles, Wiley, Duff, Stassen, Warren, and so forth, who support the basic bipartisan foreign policy and are willing to leave the military strategy to the military experts. I don't profess any affection for the old GOP elephant, but he is entitled to more respect and tenderness than he is getting from some fellas who can't see past their own nose, much less the elephant's. Two Senate committees have now agreed that in the future the President ought to seek the approval of both the Senate and the House before sending more troops to Europe. The Senate will soon get this bill. Today it passed by a vote of 79 to 5, a new draft law. This calls for the setting up, after the present emergency, of a universal military training program for all 18-year-olds. And it also calls for the drafting of 18-year-olds as soon as local draft boards have used up all available men in the present 19 through 25 age group. The bill must be approved by the House. Secretary of Defense Marshall, who had to raise an army in 1941 and who is once again charged with mobilization, is glad that the issue of drafting 18-year-olds has been well debated. In a democracy, we prefer to thrash out the matter of the 18-year-olds, for example, and give hearings to every point of view. We lose time, and very valuable time, but we must give heed in a democracy to those who disagree. It is only countries like Russia that know exactly what to do with 18-year-olds and any other young men, and when to do it. And while visiting Columbia University, Secretary Marshall took time out to pay tribute to the university's president. Now to whip into shape a team of 12 sovereign states in a period short of all-out war, and secure their acceptance of certain roles and their wholehearted support in carrying out their assigned missions is a responsibility for the leader without historic precedent. We believe that General Eisenhower can do that job. Generals weren't the only ones talking about General Eisenhower. Senator Margaret Chase Smith, a Republican from Maine, stood up and was counted as one of those who believed that her party's carping and criticizing might eventually give the Democrats the prize candidate in 1952. Senator Smith, as she spoke in Town Hall, New York. I think that there are some Republicans who fear and oppose General Eisenhower as a potential Republican presidential nominee so much that they are trying to politically kill him off with attacks discrediting his performance in a present position on which the very peace of the world hinges. Such anti-Eisenhower Republicans are short-sighted if they don't realize that their attacks may be so successful as not only to eliminate Eisenhower from possible nomination on the Republican ticket, but may go even further and push him into the Democratic camp and end up with his being the Democratic nominee for president. In America, the term big business is a familiar one. Of recent years, big labor has become just as definite a term. Without the active cooperation of both, American mobilization is impossible. This week, the split between defense mobilizer Charles E. Wilson, former president of General Electric, and the leaders of big labor grew wider. Already, labor, angered at not being given more positions in Wilson's high command, had walked out. Mr. Wilson said, nothing and nobody could interfere with defense mobilization said he didn't know what labor wanted. He wanted to know what all the shooting was about. His associate, Mike DeSalle, answered this question at a news conference. 
In quitting the defense mobilization setup, the United Labor Policy Committee said, quote, we are today confronted with a price order which amounts to legalized robbery of every American consumer. Do you care to comment on this? Well, I said it was nothing serious. They only accused us of fraud and deceit. <laughs> I thought they might have gotten very rough. William Green, president of the AFL, took labor's fight to the people last night. During the last war, free American labor proved beyond any doubt that it can outproduce conscripted labor. There is no justification now for dangerous experiments with labor conscription. Yet that is exactly where the Office of Defense Mobilization is heading. Labor can have no confidence in defense agencies which are completely dominated by big business representatives who see only the big business point of view. It was a major controversy, with the two camps miles apart, and many senators and congressmen stating that labor was crippling production. Here is Congressman Charles Halleck of Indiana. The American people in recent years have seen too much of this business of walking out. Quitting the conference table is not the way to achieve understanding, regardless of what our differences may be. Such action by any group can only prolong the difficulties we face in fitting this great defense effort into our civilian economy with the least hardship to the fewest possible people. The nation would be deeply shocked should our young men on the fighting front decide to take a walk from their obligations. It's no less important that we on the home front meet our obligations with the same will to succeed that is shown by our troops. Regardless of the reasons for the dispute, both sides were enjoying a temporary lull in the pressure. Last December, when our troops were in retreat in Korea and there was talk of a Pusan Dunkirk, neither side would have dared to remain arbitrary. Whatever the present differences between the Office of Mobilization and Big Labor, certainly no one but the Russians stand to gain anything by this mutual lack of willingness or ability to obtain the same kind of teamwork that built 85,000 planes in 1943. And in the Senate of the United States, there was a resolution unanimously voted to be sent to an absent member in a hospital in Grand Rapids. Vice President Alban Barkley asked the Secretary of the Senate to send this message to the ailing senior Senator Arthur Vandenberg, Republican, Michigan. The Vice President. Whereas our well-beloved colleague, the senior senator from Michigan, has recently been forced by illness to be absent from the sessions of this body to which he has long contributed so much in both leadership and statesmanship, and whereas the Senate, like the nation, holds him in high and affectionate regard and hopes for his early return to the debates and deliberations to which he has always given so much of himself and of his constructive thought, and whereas the knowledge of the affection in which his colleagues hold him may speed his recovery and return to the Senate, now therefore be it resolved that the senior senator from Michigan be informed of the full and fervent sense of the Senate that his complete and early recovery is hoped and prayed for. Senator Vandenberg, who suffered a relapse last weekend, read the message from his colleagues on both sides of the aisle and sat up in bed to write an answer. 
The junior senator from Michigan, Homer Ferguson, read Senator Vandenberg's reply. It was as follows. With deepest gratitude, I acknowledge the Senate's gracious message. My colleagues will never know how much their generous personal friendships have meant to me in my difficult illness. It has been a constant source of stimulation and encouragement as I seek to return to my Senate activities. I send my heartiest thanks and my best wishes to all of them. Signed, A.H. Vandenberg, United States Senator from Michigan. Most Americans whose ears are not tuned to the slightly stilted language of resolutions, but who understood what Vandenberg stood for and what his absence means to the nation and the world, would go along with the personal message the Veep attacked onto his official communique. Barclay hoped that... Senator Vandenberg, whom I affectionately refer to and call Van, uh, may uh, experience an early and complete recovery and return to the Senate where he is so badly needed. You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for ear based on the week's news. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 13 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who make the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. Today, the French, who have a fine disregard for international crises in their domestic politics, finally found a new prime minister, veteran Henri Cui. But that was hardly as big news as the fact that the British have a new foreign minister, Ernest Bevan resigned for reasons of health, though he remains in the cabinet. He will be replaced in that big corner office with the worn carpets in Downing Street by Herbert Stanley Morrison, age 63, son of a London cop, a professional politician, one of the principal architects of the Labor Party's policies and political campaigns. We have selected for you a few sentences reflecting a bit of Mr. Morrison's political philosophy. So far as foreign policy is concerned, today's cabinet shuffle will mean no change. Here is Britain's new Foreign Secretary, Herbert Morrison. We shall make the maintenance of full employment priority number one. We are determined never again to tolerate the unemployment that arises from poverty in the midst of plenty. We shall continue to put the children first. We have given the old people a square deal and will go on looking after them. The people of Britain are earning a better life. And labor is seeing that the people get what they earn, share fairly both the tasks of restoring our country and the rewards of hard work. That was Herbert Morrison, who became Britain's foreign secretary today. Missouri was not on the agenda of the deputy foreign ministers meeting in Paris this week. For five days, the representatives of the United States, France, Britain, and Russia talked about Germany and Austria, tension and Trieste, Potsdam and peace. They were supposed to decide on a list of subjects, an agenda, for a future meeting of their bosses. The United States delegation approached the meeting with a well-advertised attitude. Monsieur de Follin, the Secretary General of the conference, got the point 
even if the Russians didn't. Americans have a tradition of being from Missouri, like your President Truman, and as Dr. Jessup said just before coming to Paris, we are from Missouri, we want to be shown real proof that an agreement is possible. It's that sort of thing that makes journalists say that the Americans are pessimistic about this conference. Well, we French are not from Missouri. We are not fooling ourselves about chances for success. The French were a little more hopeful, at least in public, of some agreement. Yet throughout the week, the delegates argued, listened to endless Soviet propaganda, called on the Russians to discard the practices and policies that have increased world tension. From day to day, Monday through Friday, the story barely changed. Associated press correspondent Eddie Gilmore rushed from the conference room early in the week to phone his bulletin to his Paris office. In minutes, it would be heard and read around the free world. Hello, Joe. Gilmore here, yeah. Bulletin, yeah. Andre Gromyko and the three Western delegates uh, wrangle over technicalities for three and a half hours today. You better let that go. Okay, pick up. It was the Austrian question this time and the old repeated Soviet charge of whether or not the West had fulfilled the Austrian peace treaty. Okay, let that one go here and put somebody else on it. All week long, from three to five hours a day, the delegates wrangled it. If they made any progress toward agreeing on an agenda, the world was not told about it. The American delegation was still from Missouri. As Ambassador Jessup put it, we are not going to be taken in by mere words that do not indicate performance. It is a recognized fact that there are few politicians or even statesmen who really understand even the elementary facts about atomic energy. By the same token, there are few scientists who know very much about the rudiments of world politics. Fortunately for the nation, Dr. Vannevar Bush, who had so much to do with the manufacturing of the first A-bomb and is responsible for several other important weapons, knows about world affairs as well as the nucleus of the atom. This week, he spoke of both. The key to the matter, in my opinion, is the A-bomb. If Russia sent its armies rolling across the German planes tomorrow, we with our A-bombs and the planes to carry them would destroy Russia. We could do it without question as matters stand today. We could destroy not only the key centers from which our armies would be supplied, but also political centers and the communications of the armies on the march. Initially equipped with weapons and supplies, those armies might keep rolling for a time, but there would be no Russia behind them as we know it today. The answer to this is that the armies will not roll. No all-out war is in sight for the immediate future, unless they or we make some very serious error indeed. There is an ancient proverb about March coming in like a lion and retreating at month's end like a lamb. Actually, the biggest day of March is neither the first nor the last, but the overwhelming 15th, when the lion is an unspectacular man with a pencil and a tax form. Within the next six days the collector of internal revenue will collect the major portion of $35 billion in individual income taxes. This is the big week for the income tax people. And in Boston, our microphone listened to Dennis Delaney, collector for the Massachusetts area and president of the National Society of Tax Collectors, as he told his large staff that this was the week of March 15th and that this was it. 
Gentlemen, I uh, asked you to come up here this morning and talk a little bit about the last week of this uh, drive. We're on this last lap, as you know. Now, Jim, I want you to release all the clerks and put them down in that mailing room so that we can get that assembly line going in the last week so we can get that mail and get the checks and the money orders and get them in the bank within two or three days. Uh, Harry, I, I want you to be absolutely sure that this money, uh, which we uh, get, these checks and money orders, are deposited without any delay. Bob, I want your help to go down there and report to uh, Rocky uh, to take uh, that particular end on the deposit sheets. Income tax week is a bad time for theaters and expensive restaurants and nightclubs. By midnight Thursday, the taxpayer will have performed his annual bloodletting, and he will be resting. In the course of the ensuing months, the collectors will go after a few incomplete returns, and a few fortunate citizens will ask for refunds. Out in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a minister named Reverend L.E. Carter lost a little money and a fountain pen and announced that he was not going to press for its return. Reverend Carter had his study ransacked by thieves, and the note they left indicates quite clearly why the Reverend has decided to let bygones be bygones. Sunday night when I returned to my study, my office, from uh, making a call, noticed that my study had been entered. Went to my desk, found that my outgoing mail had been opened. In the further uh, search, the man had taken, the individual had taken my fountain pen. I looked about, and I finally found a note, hastily scribbled. And these are the words, I hate you, sign the devil. My only comment is, much as I'd like to get my pen back, I'll certainly not go down there after it. This Monday will mark the 40th anniversary of one of the worst disasters in United States history. Forty years ago, fire broke out in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York City. 700 human beings were working there. It was a sweatshop. No fire escapes. The owners insisted upon locking the doors to keep the workers from stealing. 146 girls were burned to death. Herbert Byard Swope, the editor of the old New York World and one of the great editors of his day, remembers it. It was one of the most shocking stories I think I ever had a part of. I remember as if it were only yesterday. I've seen bodies hurtling through the air. It was a sight that I shall not soon forget. That Triangle Fire was a landmark in the history of the working conditions of American labor. Out of it came new laws and new regulations, and a series of illustrious careers for Al Smith, Robert Wagner, and Francis Perkins. We wondered what a sweatshop worker of those days would think of the position of the American worker model 1951. We set out to find one. His name is Joseph Latino. I come to this country 1904. I become a white. 47 years. When I started working in this country, I worked 64 hours a week, $8 a week. We started working at 7 o'clock, and the sooner 7 o'clock passed, the people can get in and can go out because it was like the door. I remember, too, that time in 1911, there was fire, triangular fire, and there was more than 100 people who was dying because there was the door closed. That's why there was the people who was dying. The working come long away, 
since that time. We've come a long way since 1911. As we said earlier in this program, labor is now big labor, like big business. Labor unions seldom get into the newspapers or on the radio unless they're on strike or in the midst of riots or other notoriety. For that reason, for the remaining minutes of this program, we choose to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire by telling the biography of a labor union. We choose to tell the story of the ILGWU through the eyes and life of one of its 431,000 members, the daughter of 63-year-old Joseph Latino, whose voice you just heard, recalling the sweatshop days of the Triangle Fire in 1911. For 23 blocks west of Broadway in mid-Manhattan, there's an island within the island. Here, instead of the swaying palms, you hear the steady hum of the sewing machines. Its beaches are the sidewalks. Its contact with the outside world is not by small freighter, but by dollies and trucks carrying ladies' garments, 70% of the total American output, into style-conscious homes throughout the land. From the fruits of this island, nearly 400,000 people make their living. One of these people is 24-year-old, tall, pleasant-looking Italian girl named Mimi Latino. And the three most important things in her life are her family, her union, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, and her job, stitching dresses for Anthony Portale. Phyllis, please bring my things from the press. Uh, nothing press. I never have anything press in this place. Listen, what was number one song, Wander, on the hit parade? Did you watch television? Mimi does piecework, handles her job well, makes between four and $5,000 a year, is a hard worker, does better than the average. She enjoys bargaining with the street peddlers on her way to and from lunch. Heavy plastic tablecloths, a half a dollar. Pick them out, the biggest buy in the city of New York, a half a dollar. Yes, I'll lady, which color? Yellow one. All beauties here today. Most days she eats with the other girls from the shop at Marshall's Cafeteria at 38th and 8th. Attractive, though still single, she, like many of her friends, has hopes, bright ones. Wanda, did I tell you that my boy from graduated school? It's about time you told me. I really didn't know anything about it. <laughs> Well, I finally should tell you. He's a lawyer now. You know, I'm hoping you know for what. I should say again, wonderful thought. <laughs> You're lucky to marry a lawyer. It's really nice. Thank you, Anne. The Garment Workers Union, of which Mimi is one of 431,000 members, collects $3 a month from her in dues, $36 a year. In return, she gets varied benefits, more extensive than those offered by most unions today and protection at her workbench. The voices you're about to hear are Mimi, the union agent, and the boss. I'm going to show you. It's right here. Look. Here, take this pocket for instance. The sample only had one stitch. He wants two stitches on it. The holding of the back stitch here on the bottom of the dress. Here. We didn't make the dress with two stitches on the bottom. He wants two. He wants three. I can't put all that work on. Mr. Portale... I want to tell you one thing, that uh, you cannot uh, have uh, more than uh, you're supposed to have. Now, uh, and she made, the, she made the dress the same as the sample. There is nothing that you will be able to complain. Now, if you want to have any extra work, well, it's on the suit that you're the boss, you know. You have a right to demand, but you'll have to pay. Now, Miss Teandrel, I want to work on my way. And the way the, the dress is made in the shop, it must have a double stitch. If you don't want to take my decision, which I believe that my decision is more than fair, so we go and take up the case before the impartial chairman tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. 
before the impartial chairman tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Union and management in the ladies' garment industry resolve disputes such as this one through an impartial arbitrator. His decision is binding. At one time or another, Jimmy Walker, Harry Hopkins, and Charles Paletti have held this job, which pays $25,000 a year, the same salary the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court gets. Harry Uvalier is the chairman now. He's listening to Mimi's case against Mr. Portale. Uh, Mr. Uvalier, I will prove you and show you according to the description that is the additional work. And the, the firm want to have that. We want to get paid, that's all. Mr. Uvalier, our firm claims that nothing has been added and it is exactly as the sample submitted. The matter before me is uh, fairly simple. In this case, we will refer to the impartial adjuster's calculation. You will receive my decision within 48 hours. It will dispose of the dispute that exists between you. Management won that case, and the work was done. Mimi lives in a comfortable two-family house in Brooklyn with her mother, dad, and brother. They own a television set and a new Oldsmobile. We caught her as she came home from work. Mom, come home. Hello, Mom. Hi, Hello, Ryan. What's the matter, Mama? No radio on? Hey, today I go shop. I go shop. I go shop. I can't buy nothing. Everything is to be. Mama, what do we got to eat tonight? Spaghetti? After dinner, the girls drop in. They talk of many things, including shop. No, I don't think it's a good practice. I don't I, think so why at don't all. you come work in a New York shop? Because if I in a Brooklyn shop at all. Who works in a Brooklyn shop, a shop anyway, though? I do. I find it very convenient. You're about the only young girl. Everyone else is a really married woman. They like to work just around the corner. So they'll work and they'll take that from the board. The right. girls love to gripe and they love to sing. Mimi and her friends, being members of the union, decide they don't want to stay home. They might go to a union-sponsored class on current events, such as this one. High prices only bring on inflation, and what inflation means, believe me, I know, because my people live in the other side, and uh, we know what inflation means. You think, then, that inflation is not just a personal matter, is that what you mean? I think inflation concerns everybody. I don't care who they are. Or, if Mimi is in a more light-hearted mood, she might join a union class in folk dancing. And heel and toes, While Mimi dances in New York, her union colleagues in any one of 298 other cities also have organized activities. For the single girls who make up a considerable portion of the union membership, the local dance offers all sorts of opportunities for romance and unexpected disappointments. Very smooth dancer. Well, thank you. Also very pretty. Thank you again. Uh, may I take you home tonight? Oh, no, thank you. My boyfriend's taking me home. He's well, here. That's too bad. But all of the union's activities are not social. The ladies' garment workers, with assets of $110 million and dues and assessments totaling $11 million a year, must develop and train leaders. So the union has started a unique training institute of its own. David Dubinsky, the union's president, 
speaks to the 32 students now enrolled in the school. The old-time employer was one of our own. He was a cloakmaker in the cloak industry. Today, the employers of today and the future more so are the sons of the employers who have graduated colleges. And they speak a different language and they approach the subject in a different manner as we used to do it in the olden days. And being the problem is so acute, we considered no better way but training youngsters who have had some kind of an education, who would want to make the union as their career. The union recognizes the importance of good public relations with management. Ten years ago, it started an engineering research department designed to help the plant owner make his investment go further. Lee, the problem here is that we've got three operators on this operation who uh, display a real difference in their productivity. They've all had equal experience, and I can't think to find superficially what the difference is in their technique. So watch their handling very closely on this operation. I think it may be a very subtle distinction the way they pick up and handle their material when they bring it to the machine. The union maintains a thousand-acre vacation resort for its members in the Poconos. It also has 13 medical centers of its own. The newest one opened in Los Angeles only this week. That pain in your stomach is nothing more or less than too much eating at the wrong time of the wrong thing. Take this prescription, take two of those tablets, 30 minutes before each meal. Do I have this filled at my own drugstore? Or do oh, no, no. You take this downstairs to our drugstore. Not only will you save money, but we also have the proper medication. In its continuing effort to get its story to the American people, the union has produced a full-length movie called With These Hands. Two nights ago, members of the Chicago locals went to see it. Between now and 1910, a whole lifetime, how many millions of seams can two hands sew in 40 years? The garment workers through the years have spread their wings wide, even undertook a Broadway musical some years ago called Pins and Needles. Garment workers made up the entire cast. It ran on Broadway for three years, made $300,000, was professional and good. You probably remember the hit song, Sunday in the Park. And a love song with significance. No court's injunction can make me stop until your love is all closed shop. In one big union for two. The garment workers and their union are proud of many things. Their $15 million contribution to charity in the past 10 years. Their active interest in national politics over the past 15 years. Here, a union official talks before one of the conventions. There's very little to choose from the two parties. We find ourselves forced to choose between the reactionary Republican Party, which embraces the Democrats in the South, or... The Democratic Party, ruled by Northern City Machine, steeped in corruption, and with which we are so tragically familiar. We have a two-party system for election campaigns, and a one-party system for post-election performance. But the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union is perhaps proudest of its record of having cleansed itself of the communist infiltration of the 1920s, which came close to tearing the union apart at its seams. A member from Los Angeles has his say at a union gathering. I say to you that it is the duty of this convention to say to the communists in our union, no matter where they are, 
Sail under your own colors, but do not disgrace the flag of our international. This union, as we said at the start, has its friends and its critics, within labor and within management. This is Samuel Klein, director of a manufacturer's association which represents 263 firms. Make no mistake, this ILGWU is not all sweetness and light. It is a pretty tough aggregation, and they know what they want. We have lived with it for a great many years, and we have had our bitter disagreements. But like reasonable men, both the manufacturers and the union have learned one sound lesson. The rule of reason and of compromise is best. Compromise and reason are best. We suppose there are good unions and bad ones, just as there are good and bad employers. The conflict between the two has often damaged both. But take a long, cool look at what has happened to this nation, the people who live and work here, the mighty industries that have survived 40 years, two wars, and a couple of paralyzing depressions. This wasn't done by labor, management, or by government decree. It is the result of compromise and reason. The fabric of this country has been woven by all of us. At times, it has been rent by violence stained by corruption, the thread snarled by stupidity. But look at what we've woven in 40 years. Compare it with other products from other lands. It's a good garment, not completely finished, needing constant attention, but still the envy of our neighbors. We ought to wear it with pride and assurance. I come this country, 1904, when I started working this country, I work 64 hours a week, $8 a week. The working come long way since that time. You have just heard Program 13 in the new CBS series, Hear It Now, a document for ear based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly, and a CBS staff which includes Joseph Werschper, Edmund Scott, John Aaron, Jesse Zausmer, and Irving Gitlin. Portions of the program originated at WTOP Washington, WEEI Boston, KMOX St. Louis, WMT, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, WHAS, Louisville, WIOU, Kokomo, Indiana, KNX, Los Angeles, KCBS, San Francisco, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and United Nations Radio. Combat recordings were made in Korea by CBS correspondent George Herman. Olin Tai speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>